Well, during her sophomore and junior years of college, my daughter worked as a community or a community director in her dormitory, which is a resident assistant or a hall director, depending on what university you went to. And it sounded like a good deal. She was going to get room and board plus a stipend, all for this noble mission, providing leadership by fostering and cultivating relationships, mentoring residents, and facilitating learning through efforts that integrate aspects of diversity, faith development, academics, and relationships. That's a great cause. What they did not disclose was that this job description required her to be on call 24-7 on her personal phone to any resident on her floor at any time, that she would be there handling all of the emotional traumas, mental health needs, and relational dramas of 43 freshman girls, that she had to come to school early and stay late to prep the dorm and then to clean it up afterwards, that she would be up until 2 a.m. on the evenings that she was in call, that the job description included dealing with illegal substances found in wastebaskets, tossing hiding boys out of dorm rooms after curfew, and dealing with a wide variety of other needs, some of which were expellable offenses or threats of self-harm. It was a noble cause. It would have been nice to have a little bit fuller disclosure of some of the sacrifices and the cost involved. Uh, more realistic were those uh, ads. For example, Ernest Shackleton ran the following ad in trying to recruit a crew to find the South Pole in Antarctica. This ran in the London Times. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful. <laughs> Honor and recognition in case of success. And people flocked to that advertisement to be on the endeavor. Uh, the Pony Express ran this ad when it began in the middle of the 19th century. Wanted, young skinny wiry fellers, not over 18, must be expert riders willing to risk death daily. Orphans preferred. <laughs> <laughs> Both were very upfront that this is a noble expedition, this is a noble cause with a lot of dangers and a lot of hardships, and you need to go, go open-eyed into it. Last week, we looked at Jesus sending out of the 12 apostles on a mission, and it was an encouraging mission, a noble aspiration. Today, he's going to be very upfront in disclosing the dangers of being a follower of Jesus Christ called to proclaim the gospel to people who don't want to hear it. So if you would, please open in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, where we will be picking up in verse 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Behold is a term used 24 times in the Gospel of Matthew, and it calls the listeners and the readers to listen up, pay attention. Uh, for you educators, it's the one, two, three eyes on me. He had just told them that he was going to send them out as his ambassadors, as his representatives, and he was going to give them the authority to heal the sick, cleanse lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. And they had seen Jesus do all of these mighty deeds. And you can just imagine kind of their spirits and their hopes and their hearts swelling. But there's another side to this. Namely, that he is sending them out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, we looked last time that Jesus refers to the people who are distressed and downcast and discouraged because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And this was likely referring to Ezekiel 34, 
where Israel's leaders were negligent and abusive and the people were like sheep without a shepherd. But God promised that one day He was going to come and Himself regather and take care of His people. And He came in the person of Jesus Christ to do just that. To gather and to heal and to cure and to mend and to settle down and to calm and to be the good shepherd who would even lay down His life for His sheep. But now Jesus the good shepherd does something that doesn't look like very good shepherding. He's going to send sheep in the midst of wolves. Now sheep is the poster child of helpless and defensive, the defenseless. Even Christian schools don't use sheep as mascots. It's the Denton Calvary lions, not the Denton Calvary lambs. Wolves are the poster child of predators. And this sounds a little bit like poultry farmers sending the chickens out among the coyotes, or the calves among the cougars, or the dog breeders tossing the puppies in the ocean to swim with the sharks. This doesn't sound like a good situation. But Jesus isn't being haphazard or careless or heedless with the lives but there is a cause that compels him to send them out into the world. Just like there was a cause that compelled his father to send the son from heaven to come to earth knowing that he would be mocked and rejected and abused and eventually killed. Namely, that there were people out there that needed the gospel. They needed the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. They were distressed. They were downcast. And therefore, they needed someone to come and to tell them of there was hope. Because there was a God who was love, who loved them so much that he sent his one and only son to die on the cross for their sins so that they would repent of their sins and give their life to Christ, that they would not perish but have eternal life. And that message that Jesus came to give and would give his life to give, he now sends his apostles out into the world to give as well. But he warns them. They're first of all not to be unfeeling and therefore just stay home where it's safe. Nor are they to be fearful and therefore just stay home and go safe. But nor are they to be as fierce as their foes or to compromise their integrity in order to be unnoticed by the wolves. He tells them to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. They're to be wise, they're to be wary, they're to be prudent. Like a serpent that's always flicking out its tongue to get, get chemical signals from the environment to make sure there's no danger approaching. But they're also to be pure and innocent, like a white dove that constantly coos peace. So as we go out, we're not to be allowing the wolves to make us wolf-like. But neither are we to be uncautious about compromising ourselves in order to escape their notice that we look like wolf-life. Jesus in the uh, Sermon on the Mount had already warned about wolves that dress as sheep. We sheep can't dress as wolves in order to not to attract their notice. A good example of this is Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a man in Persia who was sent back to Israel after the captivity to help rebuild the wall. And there were enemies opposing this, both overtly and trying to intimidate God's people from rebuilding, and also covertly trying to get Nehemiah to be lured into an ambush or to compromise his integrity by going into the temple when he, as a non-Levite, a non-priest, shouldn't be there. Nehemiah 6 says, Come, let us meet together at Shepherim in the plain of Ono, said some of the men. But they were planning to harm me. And so I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave and come to you? They sent me messages four times in this manner and I answered them in the same way. Leave the walls, leave the work, come to us. We've got information you need to hear. But he was wary. He knew that these men who were claiming to be his friends and his allies were in fact wolves, meaning him harm. 
And so he didn't do it. So they paid a prophet, a false prophet, to try to give him a word for the Lord. Here's Nehemiah 6.10 and following. Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple. They're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you tonight. But Nehemiah said, Should a man like me flee? And should one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. And then I perceived that surely God had not sent him. But he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired for this reason that I might become frightened and act accordingly in sin so that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. Nehemiah was serpent shrewd and dove innocent. And that's what we're to be as well. We're to be shrewd because there is a lot of wolves out there who don't love Christ, they don't love Christians, and they mean us harm. And therefore, if Christian leaders are invited for an interview, they would do well to investigate the reporter, to investigate the resource, to have witnesses on hand, and also likely to record the entire conversation. Now, Christians need to be very careful about statements we make that might be publicized, that might be put on camera, about what we post online. Uh, we have to be careful about where we go and who we're with. Josh McDowell, the evangelist and apologist, never traveled alone and never stepped, slept in a hotel room alone. And he learned this lesson. One time he went into his hotel room, just checked in, opened the door, swung open. There was a naked woman on the bed, and behind the door was a man with a camera. And the whole thing was a trap. The whole thing was a snare. Uh, in recent years, LGBTQ plus activists have pretended to be Christians to enter into church as members. And then when they expose their unbiblical sexual choices, they sue the church for exercising church discipline against them. And there are people out there that mean Christians harm, that mean the church wrong. And so we have to be wary. We have to be wise. We have to be prudent. We have to be shrewd. But we also have to be innocent. And in no event can we be fearful. Can we be intimidated? Jesus goes on to tell them of some specific dangers that we need to be wary of. The first is in verse 17. Beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. Now John says that Jesus was not trusting himself to men because he knew what was in them. Jesus knows that our hearts are wicked and for a variety of motives, people can turn someone over to the courts. Now this may either refer to the municipal courts, local, municipal courts, local civil authorities, or to tribunals called by religious authorities. The synagogues were the Jewish local houses of worship that had the authority based on Deuteronomy 25 that if someone violated the law, they could lash them up to 40 times on the back and on the chest. And so to make sure that they didn't exceed the limit set by God, they would give them 39 lashes with a four-strand whip into which other thongs were braided or sometimes other objects. And Jesus said, you will be turned over to judicial tribunals, to civil courts, to religious tribunals. Be wary. Be wary. A second danger that he warns them of is going to be more painful because it's going to be more close to home. Brother will betray brother to death. A father is child. Children will rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Jesus gives two warnings, but then he also gives two encouragements, two ways to Keep them from being daunted and intimidated. The first is in verse 19. When they hand you over 
Do not worry about how or what you're going to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you were to say. It is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. If you're arrested, if you're incarcerated, if you're brought before a tribunal or a mob or a trial and you don't have time to prepare what you're going to say, don't be fearful. God himself will let the Spirit himself give you the words to speak. He gave this very promise fulfillment in Acts. Do you remember when Peter and John healed the man that was lame from birth? And he jumped up with joy and people had known that this man was lame from birth. And how did the Jewish religious authorities respond? They arrested them for preaching Christ. Here's what happened according to Acts chapter 3. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. And when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus had promised, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for the benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands before you here in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but, uh, rejected by you, the builders, but which the, became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. These weren't trained rhetoricians. These weren't lawyers. These weren't people expert at argument. These were fishermen. But the Spirit filled them and gave them an eloquence that was inspired, and they gave glory to God because He gave them the words to say. Same thing happened to Stephen, one of the first deacons. You remember that he is there and he is arrested, and an entire chapter of our Bible, Acts chapter 7, is dedicated to Stephen's eloquent rehearsal of Israel's history, of how God kept delivering them from their times of need, and they kept rebelling against God, just like they were doing with Jesus. And then he echoed the words of Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Uh, in the second century, we have an account of a gentleman named Polycarp that was a disciple of the Apostle John. And in his 80s, he was arrested and he was dragged into an arena that was filled with people calling for his blood. And the local procurator said to him, Have respect for your age, swear by Caesar, repent, and say, Away with the atheists, meaning Christians, because they didn't acknowledge the Roman gods. But Polycarp looked to heaven, pointed his finger around at the arena and said, away with the atheist, meaning the Roman pagans. The proconsul persisted and said, take the oath and I will release you. Blaspheme Christ. Polycarp says, six and 80 years have I served my Lord and never has he done me wrong. How now can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul said, I have beasts. I will throw, them to, throw you to them unless you repent. He says, call for them. The repentance that you call for is impossible because one can't repent from good to wrong, but you can repent from wrong to Christ. The proconsul said, if you despise the beasts, I will cause you to be consumed by fire. I'll burn you alive. Polycarp said, you threaten me with fire that burns for a while and after a little time is extinguished. 
You are unaware of the fire that is coming in judgment with eternal punishment. But why do you wait? Bring about what you wish. This 86-year-old man dragged into an arena filled with people calling for his blood. God gave him, gave him the wherewithal to stand for him. Just like he did Martin Luther when he was dragged before a tribunal. And there was Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, along with the upper delegates and representatives of the Roman Catholic Church saying, repent, recant. And Luther says, unless I'm convinced by scripture or evident reason, because popes and councils have often contradicted to each other, then I will not and cannot repent. For to go against one's conscience is neither wise nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me, amen. Uh, I was in Romania one time having dinner with a pastor after a teaching session. And he was talking about what it was to be a Christian under communist Romania. And one time he was uh, throwing Bibles over a fence line where there were people that they were prohibited to get to. And he was arrested by doing this. And he was brought in and he was in a quandary because he said, on the one hand, I can't lie. But also if I tell them that I'm delivering Bibles, then they're going to cast me into prison. And so he just prayed, God, give me the words. And so he was brought into the trial and they were said, you were found bringing Bibles into guarded territories. Did you do this? And so he just asked the question, I'm just a tradesman. How could I bring Bibles into protected territories with fences and dogs and securities? How could I do that? Well, he just asked the question. He didn't deny it and they let him go and God let him loose. And in that moment, he gave the words to say. And so God says, if you're arrested, if you're brought before a mob or a trial or a journalist and put on the spot, trust God to give you the words to say, but don't be intimidated into silence. Likewise, when our family betrays us, when a brother turns against brother, a sister against sister, a child against parent, a parent against child, because sometimes this has happened and sometimes this may happen, don't be daunted into silence. Trust God because he warns us that we will be hated by all because of his name, but the one who has endured to the end will be saved. Uh, my wife and I know a gentleman who converted to Christianity from Hinduism. And it's a remarkable testimony. Uh, this gentleman grew up in a priestly caste, but because he hit puberty early, it prevented him from being considered to be one of the priests of this branch of Hinduism. And he was brought to a private Christian school because the parents valued the education, even though they didn't value the faith. And they had a Bible teacher, a local pastor, and he was given this little King James New Testament with Proverbs and Psalms. And he said that when the teacher left the room, we would play dodgeball with it by throwing the Bibles at each other. And, but he kept it. And one night when the uncle that he was staying with was very angry at him, in despair, he opened up this book, read a psalm, gave his life to Christ. Came to America, and while he was here, he notified his family back home that he was no longer Hindu. And then he received a letter from his parents disowning him and a legal document from an attorney disinheriting him. And he was completely blacklisted from the family. And when he went back years later to attend his father's family, his father's funeral, he noticed that his picture had been cut out of all the family photos. And that was going to happen. And some of y'all have had family members mock you or reject you or threaten to disown you. We shouldn't be shocked at that. We can't be intimidated by that because those who endure to the end will be saved. And Jesus warned us that they hated him. They will hate those who follow him. This is what he's going to say later in Matthew 26. 
You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. These things must take place. But that's not the end. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth things. Things are going to get harder. Things are going to get worse. Jesus warned us in advance. And the Christians are going to be caught up in this. He says, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away. They'll betray one another. They'll hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. And don't you notice that? That as lawlessness increases, do you just see your heart callousing and self-protection? That we're not as warm and welcoming as we used to be? But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom must first be preached and the whole world is a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. We've been warned in advance it's going to get worse. They hated God, they'll hate those who love God. They hated Christ, they'll hate Christ's followers. We shouldn't be surprised by this, shocked by this, intimidated, daunted, silenced by this. Endure to the end and those who do will demonstrate that they truly know Christ as their Lord. Because enduring to the end is one of the signs of a truly saved person. Now Jesus gives them some additional encouragement. Look at verses 23. Whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Now remember, these are instructions for the first short-term mission trip. These are instructions for the twelve going out on an initial mission journey there will be times later that God roots people in an area and they suffer the consequences for their faith and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, likely millions of believers have given their lives for their faith. And we may be called to do that. But in this context, he said, move on. Don't be bogged down. Just move on to the next city. Remember he had warned them to shake the dust off their feet. If they reject you, they reject me who sends you. They reject therefore the Father who sent me to send you. Just move on. And there's times that sometimes we just need to move on and go. Because, he says, they will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. This is a puzzling statement that, first of all, needs to be read in context of a very similar statement that Jesus gives later in Matthew. Here's what he says in Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. We've not yet seen Jesus seated on his throne, surrounded by angels, calling all the nations to separate into those who are invited into heaven versus those who are consigned to hell. So this hasn't happened yet. So what does he mean? Uh, there's several different interpretations of what Jesus may be saying here. One explanation is simply that Jesus, you remember, when he sent the twelve, said, don't go in the way of the Samaritans, don't go in the way of the Gentiles, stay in Galilee. And he may simply be saying that you're not going to finish going to all the cities of Israel in your lifetime. This is going to be an extensive ministry that will extend beyond you. Others suggest that Jesus had sent them away apart from him, and he's simply saying, I'm going to be reunited with you before you finish all of the cities in Israel. So it may have a very short-term focus. 
Uh, a more recent interpretation by a gentleman named Charles Quarles says this, the reference to the coming of the Son of Man alludes to Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Daniel 7 actually describes a scene in heaven in which the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days and receives His authority to rule. Matthew makes it clear that Jesus' authority to rule was given to Him at the resurrection. Lo, all authority has been given to me in heavens and on earth. Therefore, what Jesus is likely explaining is that the disciples' mission to the towns of Israel would not be completed in the months between this commissioning and the first Easter. In other words, what he's suggesting is that the coming of the Son of Man, if read in light of Daniel 7, is referring to the resurrection, not the return. But the most common evangelical interpretation of this is that Jesus is simply saying is that God's not going to give up on His people until the final return of the Son. That there is a role still for Israel, not political national Israel necessarily, but God's people, the Jews. And so let me read you Grant Osborne's expression of this view. This verse anticipates a continuing mission to Israel, the Jewish people, until the second coming of Christ. Jesus' mission anticipates the mission of the church throughout the period between the first and second comings of Jesus, and this will include an ongoing mission to Israel during the outreach to all the nations. Remember Paul said that he is going to proclaim the gospel to the Jew first and also to the Greek? God doesn't give up on his people there is still an opportunity for them to repent and embrace Jesus as their Messiah, is likely what this is saying. Now look at verses 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher, and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Belzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Jesus just reminds them what he's told them several times before. If they hate Jesus, they will hate you for being a follower of Jesus. He says the light has come into the world and the darkness hated it because it exposed their deeds as darkness. So if we come and shed more light of what displeases God, people that want to do those things are going to be displeased with us telling it God doesn't like it. It's just part of it. Jesus said this in John 15, If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But you're not of the world. I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Jesus claimed to be God, and they picked up stones to stone him. When we affirm that Jesus is God, it's not going to make people happy. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to Father but through me. And people resented the exclusivity of his claim. When we affirm that people need to go to Jesus to come to God, they're going to resent the exclusivity of this claim. Jesus said that God is holy, therefore we are to be holy. And the Bible is very clear on things that are unholy and abhorrent to God. When we affirm those things as displeasing to God and exhort people not to do them, to not provoke God, they're going to resent that. And we should expect that. There's no surprises we've been told up front. Um, an article came out earlier this year that talked about the three phases of America's relationship with Christianity. And up until around 94, Christianity was viewed positively. And you would still see positive Christian role models in film and in television. But after about 1994, Christianity began to be viewed neutrally. 
But since 2014, with the Obergefell decision, we now know that the broader culture views us negatively. And so we shouldn't be shocked when Christians are spoken ill of in media and when things that are abhorrent to God are endorsed and celebrated by corporations. When the government begins to try to enact laws that are going to keep Christian physicians from honoring their Christian uh, convictions. This was all anticipated. And for those of us old enough to have grown up when Christians was favored, that's hard. And for those of you who grew up when it was neutral, it's hard. But we need to be mindful that Jesus warned us, those who follow him should expect to be treated the way he was treated. But we mustn't be daunted. We mustn't be fearful. And that's how he closes this passage. Look at verses 26 and following. First of all, notice the phrase repeated three times. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. Jesus closes this warning with, it's going to be hard. There's going to be opposition. Your family may reject you. You may be called before courts and tribunals. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And he's going to give three reasons why. The first is, there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. God hears every slanderous accusation. He knows when you're maligned. He knows when people are whispering about you behind your back. He knows when people maybe deny you a promotion or an opportunity or an admission because of your Christian convictions. He knows when those wrong you for his sake. And do you remember what he said in the Sermon on the Mount? When you are persecuted and people slander you and speak evil against you because of me, what are we to do? Rejoice. Why? Because our reward in heaven is great. God sees the injustice done against us and there will be justice done someday. And God sees those who remain true to him and he will honor that someday. Don't be afraid. Don't be intimidated. Don't be silenced. Secondly, the second reason that we don't fear is because they can only touch our body. They can't touch our souls. The worst that the world can do is send us sooner to God, which is where we want to be anyway. <laughs> The worst that the world can do is send us sooner to God. And that's our great hope anyway. They can't touch your soul. They can't touch your soul. Uh, in the wake of the German tribe sacking the uh, city of Rome and many of the women being abused, and some of them thought to harm themselves because their purity had been violated. And St. Augustine wrote them and said, no, if your soul did not participate, your soul's not been touched. They could violate your body. They can't touch your soul. You're still a virgin in God's eyes. Don't touch yourself. God knows what you did for him. Stay firm. Stay true. Don't give up hope. The one they should be fearful of, though, is God, who can cast soul and body into hell. We sang a song that sounds trite, uh, that God's the apple of our eye. Isn't that a strange expression? Did you know it's a biblical expression? But... In the Bible, in Isaiah, it's not that God is the apple of our eye, it's that we, God's people, are the apple of His. And do you know what that means? The apple is the pupil. Have you ever noticed, you see it sometimes in manga cartoons, they've got this little white thing in the eye, and that's the apple of the eye. And we are so dear to God that we're as close as the pupil is to an eye, and He knows when His people are touched. The Psalms say that precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of His godly ones. God knows when we're harmed, when we're touched. He's with us in those moments. He may permit it for His purposes, but God will honor us when we stay true for Him. 
and he will rise up in day, one day in justice and judgment against those who harm his own. The third reason is in verses 29 and 30. Do not, uh, are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than sparrows. God in his omniscience and in his omnipotence is sovereign over, even over the birds. There's not a bird that falls, even though you could buy them then two for a penny, that God doesn't know about. How much more his children? How much more his sons and daughters that he sent his son to die for and adopt? Um, I've been listening to a lot of the cicadas like y'all as the brood emerges from the ground. And I've even got this perfect husk that's sitting on my uh, bookshelf. It's just this little miracle of revival that God can do. God knows every cicada that emerges, the broods that come forth. But how much more valuable are you than that? Don't be fearful. Don't be fearful. Don't be fearful. Don't be daunted. Don't be intimidated. Keep proclaiming Christ. Keep sharing the gospel because that's why he sends us out, knowing that we'll be exposed to danger because he loves the world that much. Uh, my wife and I went with my daughter and her boyfriend yesterday to see Sound of Freedom. And it's the story of Tim Ballard, who was a Homeland Security agent who... Uh, left his job 10 months before vesting in his government pension in order to try to go rescue a girl who had been kidnapped and trafficked into sex slavery. And uh, miraculously, he had been able to restore a little boy to his father. The sister was still gone. And he felt compelled to try and go get that girl. So they set up a sting operation in South America and they're able to free 54 kids and a number of the wicked, evil perpetrators are arrested. But the little girl's not among them. And he told the brother he was going to go try to get that girl. And, and they're looking, there's an officer, they're looking at the map. And they did find out that this girl had been sold into a rebel group in the heart of Colombia. And the officer says, no one goes down there. The police don't go in there. The military don't go in there. But there's a little girl in there. And there's a dad with an empty bed. And so this gentleman, based on a true story, uh, now it's Operation Underground Railroad. Is that right? And this has become his ministry, is to go try to capture the perpetrators on little ones and to free those kids. And he and one other person dress up as UN doctors. They are literally sheep among wolves. They're unarmed. And they go down in a boat into the heart of the jungle where even the soldiers won't go, knowing that there's no military rescue if they get caught. And then they go into the heart of the rebel encampment to go and get that girl. And miraculously, they do. And the reason they do it is that God's children are not for sale. God's children aren't for sale. And what partly sparked all this was when the, the kids were kidnapped, they were lured away from the dad, and the little sister gives her brother this necklace with, I think it's 2 Tim 1.7 on it, trying to confirm that. Our, our watchmen wear it uh, on their lapels, and it says this, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and discipline. 
there are people out there who are going to die and spend an eternity away from God if they don't hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God loves them so much that he sent his one and only son from heaven to earth to become a man to suffer and die for them. And we were among them. We're some of those freed kids. But there's others that are still out there. And it's dangerous. And there's going to be people who oppose us and betrays us and hurt us and don't like what we have to share. But we can't be afraid. We can't be afraid. We can't be afraid. Because God's children are not for sale. His elect are out there. And he has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. And so we'll go sheep-like, serpent shrewd, dove innocent, to keep giving that message to a world that doesn't want to hear it. Because that's what God did for us. And that's what he sent us to do for others. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Stay faithful. Would you pray with me? Father, you are love, and you loved us so much that you sent your son to this wicked world, knowing how we would treat him. But he came anyway, and he was mocked anyway, and he was rejected, and he was betrayed, and he was turned over to the courts. Everything that he predicted, he endured for us. So, So we thank you for Jesus Christ, our brave Savior. And we thank you that you loved us so much you sent him and that there were people faithful to share that good news with us. But there are others that you love that are still in rebel territory. There's a terrible tyrant doing terrible things to them. And so you send us out in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, into other countries knowing that they don't want what we have to offer. Don't let us be daunted. Don't let us be intimidated. Don't let us be fearful. Keep us faithful. Keep us faithful. And use this church to let your light shine brightly, to push back that darkness, and raise up men and women from this body would stand up to the prince of darkness because the right man is on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Jesus Christ has won. Jesus Christ has come. Jesus Christ is ruling. Jesus Christ is coming. May he find us faithful when he comes. Amen.